Let's the rest of us open up our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 20. As we have faithfully, for some time now, been going through the narrative of Acts and gleaning from it all the wonderful spiritual lessons that it has, we've now come to a a significant moment because uh, the Apostle Paul is trying to make it to Jerusalem. And if you want to look at uh, verse 13 is where I'll start to read. Uh, We've reached the point where the Apostle Paul senses that he's not going to see the, the, the elders and the rulers of the church at Ephesus, where he had spent so much time, <clears throat> a ministry that had borne so much fruit, a, a ministry that not only produced the seemingly large and very meaningful and significant church of Ephesus, a church that even gets addressed by Jesus himself in the prologue to the book of Revelation. Now, not really the prologue, but um, but it had it had it seems that the way the ministry was, as people came and left, going through Ephesus, this major commercial town, that Paul, who had set up shop in something called the School of Tyrannus, was uh, witnessing constantly teaching, constantly, and people were getting saved and and people were traveling here and there and other churches were established in that region. And so it really became like a a, a regional hotbed of first century true, real Christianity. And so while Paul, you can tell in the letters that he writes, held every one of the churches that he wrote to very near and dear to his heart. As we've pointed out many times, Paul was a church guy. And by that I mean he recognized the church was Christ's body, and so he treated it accordingly. Um, Paul realizes that this is probably the last time he's going to see these guys. right? Because he wants to go to Jerusalem He doesn't want to actually go to Ephesus because he knows it'll slow him down on his trip to Jerusalem. So he ends up in a town called Miletus and he calls for the elders of the Ephesus ministry to come to him. And then he addresses them. And it's a rather lengthy address. It's been a while since we've read one of Paul's sermons, one of Paul's teachings, one of Paul's addresses here in the book of Acts. But this address is very important. It says so much. In fact, I I find there to be so much to analyze and teach and, and think about and allow God to just instruct us through in this message that that I'm going to read his words to you today and then Today's entire sermon is just going to be based on like the first couple words of the whole. I mean, really, today is going to be like your introduction to Paul's address here. But it's really, it's really an amazing thing that's happening here. I mean, you would expect that, right? When somebody realizes they're coming to the end of something and they're still in like a solid, focused frame of mind and they have the opportunity to speak to people that they've been working with and guiding and teaching for so long, he comes to this moment where it's like, this is my last time where I'm going to say something to these guys and I want to make sure that this matters and this is meaningful. And what he brings out is a short message, but just so filled with just critical, important teaching for, for pastors and for churches and for all Christians and so we're going to take our time over the next few weeks to go through it. And today will just be basically an introduction to it and just something that's very powerful. All right. So let me lead us in another prayer over this section of the word. And then I'm going to read in Acts 20, starting in verse 13. And I'm just going to read all the way through the address, even though we won't 
unpack any of it today, but I want you to hear it and have it in your head, okay? Let us pray, everybody. Now, Lord, we come to the point of our worship together where we want, we want, we get to be instructed by you. And I pray, Lord God, you'd help us to pay attention to your word, listen to your word, give heed to your word, believe and understand your word and be doers of it. Oh, Lord, this teaching today, help us to be doers of it. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here we go, ready? Verse 13 of Acts 20. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregilium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, as I explained, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, and here it is, here's this message. You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from Among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember... The words of the Lord Jesus that he said, 
It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's the end of his message. Then it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. That's, that's quite a message, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a passage of scripture there that we're going to take some weeks to really carefully understand. All right, Because he says a lot, doesn't he? Let's, uh, I'm not going to summarize it today because if I start like summarizing it, in, you know, that, that's, that's the end. We'll, we'll just be here the whole time. But there's, there's something he says in the beginning. There's something about the way that he starts this that I think serves as a good introduction for us to begin to understand this message. So let's just go back to the beginning and resist the urge for today to unpack the whole thing that's coming and it says at the very beginning of his message and you know I'll, I'm not going to say anything about the uh, the travel details for today all right I might go back as we're going through this to pick up some of that but I want to go right to the start of his talk in verse 18 right right where the quotation marks begin in your bible he starts it off after he has these elders come to him He starts off by saying to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. That's that's quite a statement, isn't it? Why? I, I know I like to do this a lot when I preach, but that's an amazing statement because of what he doesn't say. There's no, it's, just, it's just an honest, real statement. There's no sanctimony in it. When I came to you, you saw how much the Lord was with me. There's none of that. When I came to you, you saw all that I did. You hear all the things that I taught. Look, he could have rightly started this message off by reminding them of his preaching. He could have started this message off by reminding them of the obligations they had as a church. He could have started this message off by reminding them of the importance of various spiritual disciplines. Or he could have started this off by reminding them of certain theological points or even giving warnings. And he does all of that in the message that follows, right? What's important is what he, given the opportunity to say one more thing to these men. The first thing that he says is what? You remember how I walked when I was here. What's he pointing to? He's pointing to what was it? critical part of Jesus' own teaching and and discipling of people when he was here. He's pointing to something that he has written about elsewhere. He's pointing to something that Peter typified and wrote about elsewhere. He's pointing to something that the Apostle John pointed out about Jesus. He's pointing out that a big part of what he expects them to remember and therefore a big part of what he expects them to continue to do in his absence is be an example to those around them. That stands out to me, that of all the things he could have begun this message with, the first thing that he starts out with is reminding them of the example he set. This has implications that stretch through your entire life as a Christian. Now, let me be clear. He's speaking to elders or pastors, right? So, in a sense, you can say that the primary audience, the people who especially need to take this seriously, are me and other elders who serve in this church or in other churches. 
It's especially a call to them. You notice he called specifically the elders or the pastors. And they obviously had multiple pastors in this church, which was obviously a very large ministry that extended not only within Ephesus, but to places all around it. So he calls this group of men to them. And so first of all, pastors need to remember that they need to, in their lives, set an example for their people. But may I suggest to you that the Bible was not just written to pastors. May I say to you that the concept here of living as an example extends into your life as a leader of any ministry within the church, right? Or any teaching that you may do within the church. I would say that this extends to your life as a parent, which is like the ultimate experience of pastoring and shepherding and teaching and leading. You're called to do it in your own house. I would say even to some extent, I'm going to go ahead and say this extends to your role as husbands who are supposed to be the shepherds in your own home. I'll say even specifically, it goes to... it gives some example to wives and mothers about how they ought to be in front of their children, especially. It speaks something to all of us in how we are to live before the world that we are called to preach the gospel to and reach. The example of our manner of life is important. It's important to the Lord, it's important to your ministry. How you live matters. How you live has nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. See, that's where people get into trouble with this. We're not preaching that if you don't do such and such, you're not saved. Our salvation is entirely dependent, as we've said already multiple times in this service, on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that when you repent and believe the gospel, you have that righteousness, as it were, credited to you or imputed to you, right? So we're not talking about doing anything to secure your place before God. However, once redeemed, you are called to serve and to walk and to live. And how you live makes a difference. I know God is sovereign, I know God saves whoever he's going to save. And God knows in advance everyone who's going to get saved. Yet, here we have the Apostle Paul, one of the most prolific of all of the apostles who lived, one of the most prolific servants of the Lord Jesus who ever lived, whose own words and things even he spoke to other people are recorded in sacred scripture for us to read and to study. And when he talks to these men, the first thing he does is he reminds them how he lived. And I'm not even going to get into the details of that today. That's next Sunday's message because he goes on to say what? He describes the manner that he lives, starting in verse 19. Let me just read that again, but then we're going to read some more verses to you today. We're going to talk about the importance of being an example. But when he says... From the first day I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, he says, here's the examples he gives of the manner that he lived among them. Serving the Lord. He was a servant. That's that's in line with what Jesus taught, isn't it? Right? We'll talk about that more next week. Serving the Lord with all humility. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. In other words, Paul was constantly facing plots and schemes to undermine him. From the Jews within the churches that he was ministering to. He was constantly facing schemes and plots. People were attacking within the church. He names some of them in some of his letters. And the Jews outside the church who rejected the gospel were constantly plotting and scheming and, 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 and trying to coordinate with Roman authorities to have him killed, which is what he's facing when he goes to Jerusalem and he knows it. Also part of his example setting and his ministry was that he kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it all, teaching them publicly and house to house. 
And some people look at that house to house and they, and they say that that means house churches, and that's possibly true. But I think the idea was that Paul would teach them publicly, like in the school of Tyrannus, and he would go to the homes of families in the church, and he would spend time talking with them, right? You know, if Paul had a cell phone back then, he'd probably be constantly texting people in the churches to check up on them and see how they're doing and send them, I mean, or however he might do it. But he used to go from house to house and just teach and make sure people were grounded in their knowledge of the truth. And he used to teach the Jews, he used to teach the Gentiles. And there you get the the simple summary of the subject matter of his teaching, which was what? Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul never swerved from that. He wrote to the Corinthian church and told them, I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Because he knew that was it. Paul, Paul was great at not getting bumped off or swept up into a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. He warns them later in the message that there, when I leave, there are savage wolves that are going to come in and do exactly that. There are savage wolves that are going to come into the church and they're going to try to distract you and draw you away after themselves. That's been going on for 2,000 years. It's gone on here. It's been going on for a long time, everywhere and in every church. We'll get to all of that. But what Paul does is he lists those things to show how he has set an example for them. He endured those things. After facing all of that stuff, here he is. He's still standing and he's now getting ready to leave and going to face whatever is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Right? But he's endured through all of that. And he's telling these pastors what? Look at my example. You need to do that too. Every one of us, whether a pastor or not, can take from this. That my example, here you go, my example that I live out in my Christianity matters in ways that I will never perceive. That's what we don't get. We just think if our own families are going to church with us, then everything's okay. The example of the life that you live matters everywhere you go. In the old days, we used to call that your testimony. We still call it that today, although you don't hear people talk. You don't, you don't detect that people care about it as much anymore. Well, when I was a young Christian, that's what we were always warned about. Guard your testimony. Watch your conduct. Watch how you live. Let's talk about, let's talk about the idea of example setting from a few other passages of Scripture now with the rest of our time here today. Let's talk about Jesus a little bit, shall we? Did Jesus, did Jesus put himself forth as an example for his disciples? John, you, you, you can write some of these down. I'm just going to read them for time's sake because, you know, it's going to take a while to go through some of these things, but you can write the references down and check it out for yourself if you want. In John chapter 13, very famously, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, after he does it, John chapter 13 and verse 12 Listen, he says this. Do you know what I've done for you? Right? Well, you washed our feet, right? Oh, I did more than that. Right? Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What's that? I've set an example for you in what I expect as my disciples you will do. Right? I love, I love that Jesus says there, you call me teacher and Lord. Teacher, maybe that's rabbi. Lord, you know what that is? 
Sovereign ruler. That's what Lord means. So you run around saying, I'm sovereign. A lot of modern Christians in Reformed circles and such, they love to point to God's sovereignty, and so we should, because God is sovereign. But we forget, we, we interpret the word sovereign to mean that the exact opposite of what it does. We interpret sovereign and we confuse it with omnipotent. Omnipotent is God is all-powerful, right? And so we look at God, that God is sovereign and just say that means He just does everything. And we don't do anything. Jesus says the exact opposite here. You call me sovereign, good, because I am. And if I am your sovereign and your teacher and I've washed your feet, guess what? Not I'm going to wash everyone else's feet down through history. I expect you to wash one another's feet. Sovereignty is exercised also in commands that are obeyed by the subjects who recognize the sovereignty of the ruler. Obedience. Where does obedience come from? It comes from being filled with God's Spirit as you meditate and dwell on His Word day and night so that everything you do will prosper. You will obey. You will learn and have strength to obey. Jesus literally says there, I have given you an example that you should do. There's that word again, do. He doesn't say, I have given you an example so that I will do. No. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, ready? Come on, get this. A servant is not greater than his master. Nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If if you know these things, if you're looking at it, you see verse 17? Here's what it doesn't say. If you know these things, blessed are you. I left part of it off, didn't I? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's why Paul points to his example. Paul lived the life in front of them and then said to them, you remember my manner of living when I was there. It's powerful, right? The Apostle John wrote of Jesus, and I've quoted this before, and hopefully you've read it before. The Apostle John wrote of Jesus, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Pretty powerful statement all by itself. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is what? Anyone know what it says? A liar. A liar. And the truth is not in him. That ought to sober every professing Christian up. I mean, think about it. Dwell on it. I go around saying, oh, I know him. But I don't keep his commandments. If, unless the Apostle John's wrong, then you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. Because that's what God does when he redeems us. We're entirely saved and kept by his grace, brothers and sisters. Yes, yes. And you are right to rest secure in that. You are right to be at peace in that. You are right to have joy and thanksgiving in your heart. You are right and correct and proper to, in a sense, spiritually relax and enjoy that. Yes. But in so doing, you also became the slaves of him who brought that to you. And that slavery, as we saw this past Thursday night, is not bondage, that slavery is actually freedom. We're freedmen in Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And then this, ready? Listen to this. He who says he abides in him 
ought himself also to walk just as he walked. What if a person says they know Jesus, but they don't walk as he walked? What must you conclude? You're not abiding in him. Right? If you abide in him, you will produce fruit. You will. Christ Jesus wants us to be a display of his redemptive power and his grace and his love to this world. I don't know if people will respond to that or not. I don't care. Well, I won't say I don't care. But I don't care as much as I care about the Lord being served and pleased. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what he says to those who are his. That's not a, that's not a statement that is said to people who are lost that they might be given some task to do, that they may earn their way into the kingdom of God. That's kingdom teaching. That's church teaching. That's bride of Christ teaching. Let your light shine. See? That's why Paul tells these elders, look at the example I was. You be an example. And every Christian, you be an example to brothers and sisters in the church. You be an, ex- be an example of faithfulness. Be an example of service. Be an example of love. Be an example of devotion to Jesus among one another and encourage one another. The modern American church is in a crisis. Is in a crisis of people just thinking that they can just walk however they want to walk. As if how they live, like I said before, doesn't mean anything to anyone around them. What do you think that passage means where it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together? It says, it says, let us consider one another in order to stir one another up to love and good works. It's all like, like together, example setting. You set an example, you set an example for your children, right? Do you, do you teach your children? When you teach your children the word of God, can they see in you that you really believe it? That's no guarantee that they're going to follow, by the way. Do you know that? I mean, see, see, that's the thing. It's not like any sort of measurable success is ever guaranteed. But you're pleasing God when you do that. It's part of your worship unto the Lord. That as a parent, you preach and teach these things in your home and they can see in your walk because of the example you set that you believe the things that you're preaching and teaching. Paul, well, that, that's the other thing I want to say about Jesus. Uh, let, let's... let's We're talking a lot about Paul, but yeah, you know what, Chris? If you don't mind walking out with him and just making sure he's escorted to wherever he needs to go, that's great. Thank you, brother. All right. um, Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn there. I want you to look at this. We've been talking. Listen listen to what Jesus says about, uh, listen to what Peter says about Jesus and the example that he sets. So, 1 Peter, and I want to look at chapter 2 and verse 18, okay? Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Look at this teaching. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, right? In other words, 
This is completely counterintuitive to anything anybody would say to you today, as the Bible often is. Submit yourselves to your masters, even the rotten ones, with all fear. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. To suffer wrongfully is commendable to God. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, right? You're beaten for your faults, you're getting what you deserve. There's no great, there's no great credit to that. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is, look, commendable before God. Now look, for to this you were called. What a statement that is. You're called to it. You're called. You're called to do good and suffer for it. That's part of the calling of the Christian life. To do good and suffer. We don't want to suffer. We want to do everything we can possibly think of to make our lives as peaceful and comfortable and as self-serving as we possibly can. We don't want to suffer for anything. right? And if we do suffer, you better believe we're going to make a stink about it to whoever will listen. We're going to blow it up and make it like it's the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind. But you're called to suffer for doing good. Why? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And then this quotation, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. What, what is that a reference to? And you can read on and explains it, but what's that a reference to? That's a reference to the fact that when Jesus was being falsely accused of all these terrible things at his crucifixion, he remained silent. He was reviled and he didn't revile back. Do you understand that when we read every time at the Lord's Supper, we read through all that and they're going, aha, you know, you who destroyed a temple and raised it up, you save yourself, all that mockery and all that stuff. Jesus endured that to save us. But when he was enduring it, what Peter says is, Peter raises it up, man. And it's like, he not only was suffering that to bear our sins, but he actually suffered that to set you, his child, you, his follower, an example of how you ought to live. Think about that next time we have the Lord's Supper. Think about that next time. Think about that when you think about the song Phil sang for us today. Everyone's cheering for him as he rides into Jerusalem. Hosanna! Hosanna! And a week later, it's crucify! Crucify! And Jesus endured all of that to redeem us, but also to give you an example of what you as his follower are called to. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. Jesus was the great teacher by example. We're to follow his example. And this is how Christianity works. It's like this cycle of example sharing. Share it forward, if you will, to sound like a cliche. You follow the example of Jesus. You follow the example of the apostles. You follow the example of your pastors and elders and teachers. You follow the example of your godly parents. You follow the example of other believers who you know love the Lord. You know? And then what do you do? You walk that way and you set that example for others in your life. You set the example for your wife. You set the example for your children. You set the example for other brothers and sisters in the church. You set the example for the lost people that you work with, the lost people that you encounter day by day as you walk and endeavor to represent Christ with your life. Example setting is powerful. That, and and, and to, 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 not, to not get too adrift from where this all started. Paul has this message to share with these guys that he's never going to see again. And, and, and what does he do? The first thing he does, he says, I want to remind you how it was when I was among you, how I walked. You remember that, right? You know, maybe some of them like Eutychus dozed off you know, through, the, through the rest of the message. He was going to make sure, he was going to make sure they heard this part. In the beginning. This is big. It's important. What else? Uh, Paul 
that what, what Paul says to these elders at Ephesus sounds very much like another passage of Scripture, doesn't it? It sounds very much like what he wrote to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. And, second, and, and Timothy, of course, at the time that Paul wrote 2 Timothy, was leading the church at Ephesus, right? So this is years later that Paul writes this. It's like, it's like you, you want to talk about someone who's consistent. As Paul makes this address, he makes this address to the, the elders at the church at Ephesus, and then years later, when Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus, he writes to them the exact same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Timothy was around and saw a lot of that happen way back in the day. What persecutions I adored. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, etc. and so forth. Then he goes on to remind him of something else that's important, which is how he's known the scriptures for his whole life. And that needs to be the basis for his ministry, that he teaches the word of God to people. But even there, when he writes to Timothy, before he even gets to the importance of preaching and teaching the word of God, he says, you remember, Timothy, that you followed carefully what? You followed carefully my doctrine and my manner of life. You followed not only what I said, you followed what I did. See? In 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.12, he told young Timothy not to let anyone despise his youth. You know that statement, right? You ever heard that before? Yeah. Shake your head yes. If he said, let no one despise your youth. You know what he says after that? I feel like a lot of Christians, they memorize that much of it, but they don't get what happens, what he says after that. 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, let no one despise your youth, because Timothy's a young man leading the church at Ephesus. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He tells young Timothy, don't let anyone despise the fact that you're young. Because that would happen maybe, you know, right? Like our, our, our brother Dan Mercado just started as a pastor at a church out there on Long Island. And it's like, you know, one of the things that's awesome is that he's one of three pastors in that church and, and the other two are older men, right? And so that kind of maybe helps with some of this. But if Dan were the only pastor of that church, like Timothy is pastoring here, that shouldn't matter. The fact that he's a young man, as long as he's not a novice and he's seasoned and he's trained, which Timothy certainly was, he says, don't let anyone despise your youth because if Timothy sets a poor example by his conduct, if Timothy is, is not a loving brother and his spirit is all over the, faith, the place and his faith is weak and he lives an impure, worldly, carnal existence, then people are going to look at him and say, he's young, he's too young for this, he doesn't know anything. Paul says, don't let anyone ever have the opportunity to say anything like that about you. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in the church and all those things. That's an especially good admonishment for me because Paul is writing <coughs> to the pastor of the church. Looking for my water here. I hear other people with like dry throat clearing going on, right? It's like, it's dry, right? Uh, he, he tells them, I lost my spot. <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, so I was talking about Timothy, I know. Timothy, ti that's right, thank you. Good, Bob. Paying attention. See? He's not letting anyone despise his youth. He's being an example by showing that he's paying attention. Praise the Lord. If I keep talking, I'm going to forget again and I'm going to call you on you again. So, uh, I actually did. 
Um, so it's not just for the pastor. It is for the pastors. But you see the pattern that's laid out there for every Christian. We don't want to give people as Christians. Look, we're not sinless. We battle and we struggle with things of the flesh, but we're careful about how we walk because we don't want to give people opportunities to blaspheme. Right? Like that. Okay, that's good. Let's move on from that. Romans 13, 11. Let me read this. He says in Romans 13, 11, that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. Right? We read that last week when we were talking about Eutychus, right? Let me read the, the rest of the passage, though. I don't think I read this whole thing last week. He said, it's high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. Why is that important? Why is it important to wake up because we're closer to the day that we're going to realize our salvation? The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but here you go. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's how we're called to what? Walk. Let us walk properly as in the day. When we walk properly, we are setting a good example in our conduct for others around us and we are walking pleasing to the Lord. Now look, how do you do this? Here's where it gets hard because we obviously can't bear any fruit in and of ourselves, right? When it says to walk properly, that's not a command that probably any of us in our own strength can obey. But this is where the Christian is different. This is why this teaching is given to Christians and not people that are lost. Because Christians have the Holy Spirit living in them. The teacher. And we're called to be filled with the Spirit. And if we're filled with the Spirit, then we will bear fruit. We're called to abide in the vine. And Jesus says what? If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. So how do you do this? How, how do you get to the place where you're filled with the Spirit and walking properly? Because that becomes, in essence, the great issue. That's the great thing that's at work here. How, how is one able to be an example to others? How is a pastor able to be an example for others? How is a parent able to be an example for his children? How is a teacher able to be an example for somebody else? Like Jesus was. Like Paul was. Like Paul tells these elders they should be. Like Peter did, by the way, himself in one of his epistles. He told the elders to shepherd the flock which was among them and to serve as examples, right? Peter said that too. How, how is he able to do that? Listen, it's one way. It's, it, it goes back to the basics of Christianity. And I feel like, and I have felt like this for 20 years now, every sermon, every teaching to Christians can arrive at the same point ultimately which is that those basic things that you learn when you first become a believer, they never become unimportant. They always are critical in your life. You must be Bible people. The Bible is God's word. Every word of the Bible reveals his mind, reveals his will, reveals his instructions. Look, the heavens declare the glory of God. You can look in the sky and see that there is a creator, right? But the Bible reveals who that creator is and what that creator thinks and how that creator is served and what that creator is still going to do. And so every Christian must hang on desperately every word of Scripture. We should be reading, we should be studying, 
You know, we, we can't even worship without the knowledge of God's word. And, you know, people go to church all the time and they'll sing songs. And what are you singing about if you don't read your Bibles and you don't know your Bibles? You know, you know Psalm 119, right? I, I gotta, this wasn't part of what I was going to say, but I, it just came up in my own reading this week and I had this thought. Psalm 119. In verse 7, right in the beginning of the first stanza, it says, I will praise you with uprightness of heart. Can we all say amen to that? Amen. Do you all like to come to church and praise him with uprightness of heart? Yes. Now look at the second half. When I learn your righteous judgments. How do you praise him with uprightness of heart without ever learning his righteous judgments? You're praising what you don't know. God has given us his word. If you want to be fruitful and you want to set a good example as the Lord wants you to with your life, start here. Start in the word. Read the word. Get in the word. Grow up. Don't be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Get into the word. He causes you to grow and to become complete. Read the word and read it again and read it again and study the word, right? Set, sit and think like that. Like I just gave you one small example that took like two minutes of reading one single verse and just thinking about it for less than a minute, right? Huh, it says, I will praise you when I learn your, when I learn your judgments. So if I'm gonna really honestly, truly praise the Lord, I need to know his word so I know who it is that I'm worshiping, Right? there's a 30-second meditation on God's Word. You don't need a theological degree or anything like that to do that. You have the teacher living in you. Read His Word. Meditate on His Word. Think about His Word. And be obedient to His Word. I mean, that's it. That's ultimately where the fruit starts. Is you see it in the example of the lives the Christians live. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. And we thank you, Lord God, that we can read it, study it, know it. We pray that you would help us to take seriously in our lives how important our conduct is as our conduct sets a pattern and an example for others, especially for pastors, especially for elders and church leaders, but really for all of us who live and walk before you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.